0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would read a patron email. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist. This is an email from patron Meg. She writes, Hello, Psych in Seattle friends. I discovered your podcast a couple months ago, and I love it, and have been happily binge listening, and I've been learning a ton. Also, Bouncing the layperson and professional perspectives off of each other really helps round the information out. Umberto is awesome, and I love the random solutions he comes up with on the fly. And Paulette's witty writer's sense of humor is a beautiful addition. Uh, Just jumping in here. Uh, They have been very busy lately. That's probably why you haven't heard much from them on the podcast Um, Umberto is uh, very busy with uh, travel, actually, and Paulette is very busy with work and whatnot. So they have not been on the podcast recently. I'm hoping to change that soon, uh, and I think it will change uh, going on with the email here. To everyone else who puts time and energy into the podcast, you are much appreciated. I also wanted to thank Odani for her candor in the suicide and depression episodes. Some of the things in my head clicked pretty strongly with some of the things in her head, and it's nice to feel like I'm not the only penguin on the island. (laughs) Not the only penguin on the island, I like that. Dr. Honda, I'm a bit in awe of anyone who can spend their day immersed in the enigma of a family. An individual's mental health is fascinating, but the thought of trying to understand all the facets of family and nudge them toward some semblance of health seems overwhelming yeah, just chiming in here. Yeah, it is it is overwhelming, frankly. I mean, individuals are to some extent overwhelming, but, but families are particularly overwhelming. We just had an open house at the university in which prospective students came and um, asked questions of me to decide whether or not they want to come to the program. And something that I often am reminded of as I'm explaining why I became a family therapist, why I became a marriage and family therapist is, I'll say, first I'll say, well, I I want to work with individuals, which I do, but I also wanted to be trained to work with couples and families because I I didn't want to be limited to just individuals. And then the next thing I say is when it's possible to see um, people come together and love each other right before your eyes, it's really a sight to see you know you've all probably been in situations where y- you were with friends or family and you just saw them fighting and you just saw them not getting along and some of you might be good at you know you're 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 good enough with uh, communication yourself or with helping others that you might have even helped them in the moment but usually in my life unless I'm the person's therapist it's hard for me to actually get in there and help them. They often don't want my help if I'm not their therapist. You know, for instance, if it's my, I have two friends and they're married and they're fighting in front of me at a dinner party or something. And I were to say to them, Hey, you know, how about we work this out? They're going to look at me like, you know, go away Kirk, stop bothering us. But when people come to my office, that's the reason why they're there. And I am, you know, people come to me quite upset at each other and they come to me at the verge of divorce. They come to me at the verge of giving up on their, on their daughter or their son or their parents or whatever. And after a number of sessions, it's their relationship uh, is less conflictual. It's the, the family life is lighter. They, start to have more intimacy there's there's laughter again and love and closeness and accommodation and coordination and to see that happen and right before your eyes in your office is quite uh, a sight to see i don't i really have good words for it but it's it's a wonderful experience I will tear up a little bit in session sometimes, and I tear up much more often when I'm talking to couples and families uh, and I think it has to do with just that, okay, so moving on with the email this is a this may be an ignorant question, and obviously you shouldn't answer if you don't want to, but I'm curious. Does being familiar with the complexity of relationships and conflict benefit you in your personal life? Or is it like you have a set of superstellar therapist communication skills that live in your office, but then when you leave for the day, you're just as lost as everyone else? I can tell if that, I can't tell if that question makes any sense or if it's rude to ask, but I'm going to stop staring at it now and just click send. <laughs> um yeah so just to let you know listeners out there feel you know don't worry about emailing me or how i'm going to read something i i'm just i'm just a guy i'm just a dude and when you email me i'm just a dude reading an email there's i don't uh i don't judge i try not to anyway so me what do i have to say about that well, first off, thank you, patron Meg, for your wonderful email, and you have a way with words. You you can, uh, as I was reading your email, I can hear your voice. You, you you are talented in being able to put your voice into email. I find that people who can do that are really um, fascinating to me, because I'm, I'm not very good at that. So thanks for your nice email. It's a very good question here at the end. It's very complicated, though, because... I could go on and on about it, but I'll just try to summarize here. Um, You know, the the first thing that I have to ask myself in relation to your question is, what would I be like if I wasn't a therapist? So I'm 45, let's say, and I became, I started my journey at the age of 24, I think, to become a therapist. And so let's say I did something else with my career. How different would I be? would I be that different or would I have, you know, cause prior to deciding to become a therapist, I'd always been interested in the human condition and what makes people tick and had that, uh, just innately, or just, it was always part of my personality. And if you, uh, were one of my friends, we would often talk about that sort of thing going back into high school or middle school or something. And so maybe I would have always been contemplative, um, about, humans and about myself. It's hard to know. I mean, for instance, I went to therapy when I was 19 and at that time I, I wasn't planning on becoming a therapist. Uh, so it's, it's probable that I probably would have been in therapy off and on too. So it's hard to know, but I would say that I am, I benefit from being a therapist in terms of insight is the word they often use. I know a lot more about myself. I would say, for a number of reasons. One is is that whenever you're reading about personality and about the human condition, about psychopathology, or just um, you know health versus unhealthy practices, mental wise, you will frequently think about yourself in relation to that. You know when you're reading about cognitive behavioral therapy you think oh you know what are what are my what are my automatic thoughts and and a lot of times in classes there's explicit exercises or papers or you know assignments that will ask you to use yourself as a test subject so to speak and so i over the years have i would imagine learned a lot more about my personality and and why i do the things i do and the kinds of frustrations that I have personally and and why I have them and how to prevent them. Uh, I would say that I've, you know, learned for instance, the importance of human touch and the importance of uh, pushing back against male uh, socialization to be tough and to be a man. I I remember, (laughs) I, I was just thinking about this recently. I, it's hard to imagine me before I became m- more aware of male socialization and of culture and gender and all this kind of stuff. But I, I can remember glimpses of the me before before being enlightened. For instance, I remember in high school, just having this very traditional idea of what uh, romance was and and what it was to be a man in in romance and and how how cheesy it was or just how traditional it was or and and how patriarchal it was like the vision in my head i had of like a perfect romantic situation was one in which i as a man was taking care of a woman where i was protecting her and saving her and enveloping her with my protective strength. (laughs) It sounds just absurd, but that's what men are socialized to think. They're socialized to, through many messages that they are put on this planet to protect women. And there's nothing more romantic than saving a woman from the evil dragon or something and to hold her and to protect her and to to make her feel safe. And I remember in high school, just, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid on that. I don't think I would have said it that way, but I I definitely remember thinking that. And I also remember thinking that not only was that the, the value, but I, as a man, needed to achieve that in order to establish the fact that I was a man. And that women wanted that and many women did incidentally because they're socialized similarly and I needed it to be seen I needed my manly protective strength to to be seen by by everybody it reminds me of a of a scene that I love in Brokeback Mountain I, I don't know if I remember it right, but it's when the Heath Ledger character, they're at a Fourth of July uh, you know, celebration with uh, fireworks and whatnot, and Heath Ledger is with his wife, which I believe is played by Michelle Williams, and someone, some bully, some drunk bully or something starts messing with Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams or something and and Heath uh, is trying to be nice. He's like, "Well, you know, let's, let's come on, bully. Let's let's calm down." He's trying to be nice, and then push comes to shove. I, I, I probably have the scene entirely wrong, but <laughs> at any rate, Heath the Heath Ledger character, you know, the the bully went one step too far, and the Heath Ledger character, you know, says okay, and then you know hits him and protects Michelle Williams, his wife, and I think his kid from from this bully, and <clears throat> the director. Ang Lee, I believe his name is, has this hero shot in which the camera is low looking up at Heath Ledger and the fireworks are going off behind him and Heath Ledger has you know that that cowboy hat on and that cowboy American, you know, outfit even though the actor is Australian I think, but it's it's just it's so manly. <laughs> and I as I say it, I, I think that the uh, scene was specifically put in there because I think it was based on the book. I'm not sure, but it it shows this juxtaposition of a gay man and extreme uh, masculinity and noble chivalrous masculinity. It, it's it's an interesting uh, scene, you know. And I think that that I think that movie doesn't get enough credit for. What I think it accomplished, uh, even, particularly at the time, uh, you know, I don't know how long—ten years ago or something. But anyway, so so I was different, and I am different now, and I would only assume that being a therapist has has been a part of that. My, uh, tr- you know, my frustrations with with gender socialization and my reading of the research and my reflections on myself. And, and I I would say there is every week, I have at least one in-depth conversation with someone about gender because I'm talking with clients. I'm talking on the podcast. I'm talking with students and supervisees and other therapists and gender comes up. And so you just got to figure over time that you're going to develop now, if I wasn't a therapist, would I have developed other kinds of skills? Yes, I, I, I wonder what those would have been. But, but anyway, I think I've also learned to understand other people better, too. I've learned how why people exhibit weird behavior. When I talk to novice therapists, I will say, Prior to becoming a therapist, you could point at someone that's acting strangely or that's annoying you, and you could say, "Oh, look at that annoying, strange person." Once you're a therapist, it's it's wise to start wondering why that person is doing that and where they're coming from. You know, the someone emailed me today about the O.J. Simpson episode that I made, "Psychology of O.J. Simpson," and. And, you know, one of the big things I was talking about was how the jury decided to acquit because, you know, well, one of the reasons why they acquitted was because they were – the black community in L.A. had been pushed so far and had been given no ability, no power to strike back at injustice that when the time came – and they could very visibly strike back. They they naturally took that opportunity. And when you watch the documentary in particular, you really figure out why they did that. There was just you know a long long string of injustices that were happening to the black community from the police. And then when Cochran uh, made the argument that the police might have planted all this evidence, blah, blah, blah. The uh, jury was like, yeah, that's, that's totally conceivable. I've seen it happen all the time without any punishment. And now I can actually strike back. And so they did. And so someone emailed me and said, that's a crock of shit and that I should go to hell and (laughs) that I'm stupid. And so, um, you know, they weren't saying it that bad, but essentially that's what they are saying. And so, um, and, when i uh you know have studied human psychology and when i interface with it and i wrestle with it and especially when i talk with clients who i you know under normal circumstances if i wasn't a therapist i wouldn't have to stretch myself to understand them but with clients uh, i with all my clients, every single one of them, I have to extend myself to have compassion and to understand them. Now, some people are, you know, shall we say very easy for me to have compassion for and and others it's, it's more difficult, but it's still my job to get to that place in my heart. And, and I would say I'm 99% successful with that uh, 99% of the time. It's not hard for me to do anymore. It was hard in the beginning, but it's not hard for me to do now. And when I do that, part of that process of, of gaining compassion in my heart for someone that it's a little difficult is trying to understand why they are the way that they are. So, for instance, say someone comes into my office and is really hostile with me or slightly hostile with me. Again, if I wasn't a therapist, I'd be like, that person's a jerk. I don't want to talk to them anymore, and I hate them, and I have zero compassion for that person. But these people are my clients, and so it's it's not effective treatment-wise to not have some compassion. And and so I seek to get that compassion. And when I do, part of the process is like, well, why, why are they being hostile with me? What's behind that? Uh, I'm not going to take it personally personally, they probably treat a lot of people this way. What are the, you know, is it fear based? Is it, are they hurt? Are they worried? Did I, did I do something that I'm not aware of? Did uh, something happen? And, and so I just ask all these questions and eventually I land on a narrative that will provide meaning to that hostility and a context for it. And then, you know, for instance, they're, they're so desperate for, love and attention and stability and they've been hurt so many times that they're very untrusting of other people and are naturally uh they they they're hostile because they're just put in a bad mood from that whole thing and so if i can see it that way then i can have compassion because it's it's not me it's 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 natural for them to be hostile with me because they've been through a lot in their life and so that's that practice, I think, has definitely changed the way I approach all human beings and myself, for that matter. When I have freakouts and meltdowns, I take it easy on myself more now, definitely. And I notice more things about myself. You know, emotion and cognition is extremely complex, and I'm discovering new things about myself all the time. And reading about it and thinking about it and when something happens to me having a way of of contemplating it is actually you know i think quite quite useful to me now this is me saying how much i've learned and it, you'd really have to talk to other people around me <laughs> to really answer this question you know patron patron meg is is asking does does being familiar with the complexity of relationships and conflict benefit me in my personal life? Well, you'd have to ask people in my personal life if that's true, because I'm certainly uh, biased. I'm going to say, yeah, being a therapist makes me a much better family member and a much better friend. But you'd really have to ask my family and friends about that, because they, I'm sure have, you know, a, a, a less of a biased opinion about me, you know? And I am a human being. I, I exhibit all the normal foibles of anybody else and am just as prone to being an idiot and being selfish and being uh, unreasonable. And so, uh, uh, so, I'm not, it's not like being a therapist has erased that by any means. Uh, by any means, let me tell you. Uh, I would say that specifically being a therapist early on. I think I've talked about this before in the podcast, definitely helped me with my anxiety. I have been suffering from anxiety my whole life, and it really uh, progressed in, and increased in its intensity in my early 20s. And when I became a therapist, I inadvertently just started learning about, about anxiety, and instantly my anxiety decreased. Because a big part of anxiety is not knowing why you have anxiety, and it's particularly panic disorder. And so once I learned about the whole process, it reduced it to probably like 2% of its original intensity. It was, it was almost overnight. I remember I was taking psychopathology, and one of the chapters is on anxiety and panic, and, and I was like, holy crap, that's, that's what I have. <laughs> and I had never known before. And part of it was my own fault because I didn't want to go to a doctor because I was afraid of what the doctor would say. I thought, I thought if I went to the doctor, they'd say, oh, well, you're, there's something really wrong with you and we're going to have to open up your brain and start digging around in there. And that was just too frightening for me. And so I just avoided going to any clinician. So when I came across the information on panic in the in the psychopathology class, and it wasn't like it was a tremendous amount of information. It was just very beginner level information but as soon as i learned it i was like it just completely changed it in my mind and i was consequently just much less anxious because a big part of the anxiety was because i was afraid of the anxiety and if you have anxiety you understand that And if you don't you probably don't understand it but as soon as i was no longer afraid of my anxiety most of the anxiety went away so so that was a big deal. Another more recent big deal to me was i I have what a lot of people call death anxiety, but I don 't really like that term i I just think a lot about the fact that all of us are going to be dead at some point it's It's something I've always thought about since I was a, a young person. Nothing happened to me when I was young to make me think about it there there There's just a set of people. Like Woody Allen thinks about it a lot, right? There's just a certain – a lot of the you know existentialists, philosophers often think about it. There's just a certain group of people, percentage of people that for whatever reason, they think about death a lot. They think about the fact – they contemplate their own death. They think about the fact that everything is going to be gone, you know. I'm looking out a window right now and there's a bunch of trees and people and they're all going to, all the trees, all the people, they're going to be dead in, in the future. At some point in the future, everything on the planet will be dead. <laughs> and, and for some of you, you're like, yeah, I think about that all the time too. And for some of you, you're just like, why are you so morbid? That's just so, you know, there's something wrong with you. And uh, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, it's just something I think about. I, I don't, I don't, There's a, there's most of me doesn't really want to think about it because wouldn't it be nice not to, not to acknowledge such a, such a, I don't know, unknown, scary thing. I mean, even if you're religious, it's like, you're not really quite sure about the afterlife, right? I mean, you can be 99.9% sure, but, but you're not really sure, right? And uh, particularly if you're an atheist or you don't believe in an afterlife, it's, you know, it's anyway. So (laughs) the point is, is that. I've always thought about it, and I've had different periods of my life, like, you know, a few years where I, it would, it would be particularly concerning or distressing to me to, to think about death and the fact that we're all going to be dead. And I went through one of those periods recently, and uh, at the same time, I was uh, uh, learning about research and I was, trying to read other qualitative research, because I conducted research, qualitative research, and I was reading other qualitative research reports, trying to understand how other people conduct qualitative research. And I randomly came across this one qualitative research study that was on death anxiety. And it had all these accounts from people who thought about death and, and, I read them, and it instantly reduced my distress. It was the weirdest thing. It wasn't as if I didn't know other people didn't think about this sort of thing, but it was written the report was written in such a way that it just really resonated with me. I, I can't really explain it. And very quickly, it reduced my my distress around the death anxiety issue. And since that time, which was I don't know two or three years ago, I don't think about the I don't think about death anxiety as much anymore. I mean, I still think about it, but it doesn't plague me the way that it had before. And so, I would not have come across that if I was not a professor or, or involved in learning about research. And uh, so, that's another benefit. I think um, I might have actually even avoided those kinds of. Uh, texts, because I d- wouldn't want to think about it perhaps. so because it, it's not like I sought out this thing to to try to heal myself. I just randomly came across it in my in my researching. So you know that's just another specific thing. Um, also, the last thing I'll say is that when I'm talking with my clients, there will be times where we'll be working on something that is very close to things that i am personally struggling with and as we're working on it it suddenly occurs to me that wait a second i'm helping someone with something that i need help with and as i'm helping them i'm vicariously helping myself as i'm saying things to people and and giving them positive regard or having empathy or trying to help them to re-narrativize their situation in a more healthy way or trying to help them develop healthier practices. I am also noting to myself, huh, Kirk, you should probably practice what you preach and do this very thing for yourself. Now, therapy isn't advice giving, but there is a fair amount, depending on the situation, of guidance. And so, I, I benefit from that. I assume, you know, there are times when I'll say, huh, you know, after the session is over, I'll just say, okay, Kirk, make sure you don't forget what you just went through and make sure you also follow that because that'll help you. You know, things like, um, I might be telling somebody that they, they might be complaining about their boss or something or their friend. And they're like, yeah, I'm really upset at her because blah, blah, blah. And, and I said, well, and, 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 they seem to be heading toward a place of like, well, I'm going to, I'm just not going to talk to that person anymore. And I might say, well, you know, maybe give that person a chance. Maybe just tell that person what's on your mind. You deserve to have your voice heard. And if your friend or your boss is, is a good human being, which I assume they are, then they'll respond well to that. Usually it just requires, you know, just, just get it off your chest and, and it, Often that goes well. Sometimes it doesn't, but often it doesn't. And if if you don't say anything, you don't, you're not going to, you'll, you'll never know. Well, you know, I can follow, I I can definitely benefit from that advice. And, uh, and so when I say something like that, I'm just like, huh, there's, you know, there's a thing that I'm struggling with right now. Maybe I should go to that person instead of being afraid to, to talk with them. Yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks for asking the question, patron Meg. Again, thanks for your lovely email. and I hope that answers your question. And that does it for the episode. Thanks for joining us out there, joining me out there. And take care of yourself and take care of others because you deserve it and the people around you deserve it.